So the first uh, issue we have to face is that there are certain predictions by the Darwinian uh, story, and uh, this prediction is gradualism. And actually, Darwin, in his famous book, The Origin of Species, he mentioned a Latin sentence six times, natura non facit saltus, nature doesn't make jumps. And he has had a good reason to uh, emphasize this uh, gradualism against the advice of his friend Thomas Huxley. And the reason, of course, is as soon as you have major saltations, then it's difficult to explain these saltations in a naturalistic way. And uh, they uh, are getting close to some kind of miracle-like events. So he emphasized, I need gradualism or otherwise my theory is of no big use. And that's still the case. Richard Dawkins, in his famous book, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, he still said evolution not only is a gradual process, as a matter of fact, it has to be gradual if it is to do any explanatory work. So in the fossil record, we can check if this is really the case. And, and we have a kind of window into deep time to, to look if we find this gradual pattern that is predicted by Darwinian evolution. And of course, it's not there. And Darwin already knew that it's not there. And uh, then you have to explain the conflicting evidence. So uh, many people will say, well, that's just gaps of evidence. And there is a famous quote by a vertebrate paleontologist, Philip Gingerich, who said, gaps of evidence are gaps of evidence and not evidence of gaps. So is this really uh, true? There is a nice analogy that was suggested by my colleague Paul Nelson. And he said, imagine uh, you have a new hobby, beach combing. You're looking for things that the flood washes in at the, uh, at the beach. And when you start every day, you find something new, new mussels, new snails, and so on. But the longer you do it, uh, the more you find the same things over and over again, and you get repetition. And maybe then, after some years, you find the first message in a bottle. Uh, but basically, you find the same stuff. And then you know you have reached a certain saturation. And you have sampled what is out there. And what is still lacking is not lacking because you have not sampled enough, but because it's not there or it cannot be uh, washed in by the flood. And the same is done in paleontology. There it's called the collector's curve. And the collector's curve, uh, you have on the, uh, on the horizontal axis, you have the effort you have to put in. You can count this in energy, or in funding money, or in man hour. Uh, the energy you have to invest to find something new. And on the vertical axis, uh, the new discovered uh, groups in the fossil record. And you have, uh, in the beginning, you have this steep curve where you have to invest a lot, uh, not much energy or time or money, and you can find a lot, a lot of new stuff. But then the curve flattens, and then you have reached this kind of satur saturation. And this has been statistically tested in many groups of organisms. There's a famous paper from 1999 by Foote and Sapkowski. And they found that we have reached this saturation point in, in many groups of organisms, especially in, in uh, multicellular animals. For example, in vertebrates, we have 80% of, of vertebrate families are recorded in the fossil record. So uh, an appeal to the incompleteness of the fossil record to explain away gaps or, or discontinuities, uh, that was still available for Darwin's argument. It's not available anymore. And another thing I want to emphasize before I go into the details is I will talk about millions of years. And when I say, well, certain groups came suddenly into existence within a window of time of 10 million years, then uh, it might seem a little bit counterintuitive that this is abrupt. But uh, of course, we are talking uh, about different dimensions here. Like an astronomer talks about uh, billions of light years, and, and 10 light years is just a pro, uh, proximity of our star system. If we talk about 10 million years, we have to keep in mind that uh, the average lifespan of a species, not of an organism, but of the whole species, to come into being, exist, and go out of existence is uh, between uh, two and a half and 10 million years for, for mammals, insects, marine invertebrates. So when we have a five million year window of time, that's just the lifespan of two, uh, one or two successive species. And that's really abrupt. So let's look at some abrupt uh, happenings in the history of life. You probably all heard about the Cambrian explosion and might think that this is 
uh, an exception from the rule. I want to show you uh, some more examples uh, that this is rather the rule. And it starts with the origin of life itself. In the meantime, we have found a lot of uh, very old records for, for the first life, which is now going back to 4.1 billion years ago. And that is very surprising for a certain reason, because uh, in a time window between 4.1 and 3.8 billion years ago, there was an event in Earth's history called the Late Heavy Bombardment. And that was a time in Earth history when a few very large impacts, and that were impactors, meteorites, not 10 kilometers in size like the impact that extinguished the large dinosaurs, but uh, 500 kilometers in, in diameter. And uh, there are a lot of studies about the evidence uh, that can be found. And, and uh, what they found is that these collisions evaporated Earth oceans that existed before several times. They were completely evaporated into the atmosphere. And now we have uh, evidence for life even at the beginning of the late heavy bombardment. And that is, of course, uh, a little problem. And uh, as it happens, one of the authors who discovered this 4.1 billion year old evidence for first life is also co-author of a study that uh, disputed the late heavy bombardment, not uh, based on new evidence, but on the same evidence we had before, just reinterpreting it. Because it's difficult to imagine how is it possible that you have life uh, and later, several times, the oceans were evaporated. But maybe the authors uh, then said uh, life could survive in certain uh, uh, cracks in, in, in the Earth mantle and uh, later flourish again. But the next uh, abrupt event is the origin of photosynthesis. And there we have also very old evidence. Uh, meanwhile, direct evidence, uh, th uh, 3.7 billion years from stromatolites, uh, from real fossils of mats of cyanobacteria, but also indirect evidence, biochemical evidence uh, from 3.8 billion years ago. So photosynthesis came into being right at the first moment in Earth history where it was possible, where the oceans were no longer evaporated and there were open oceans where marine algae could develop and, and generate oxygen. And photosynthesis is a very complex uh, uh, system. You see here one of the proteins involved in, in photosystem two. And we should expect to find something like this after a long period of evolution and not at the very first time it is possible for something like this to exist at all. And then we have the first explosion in, in the history of the fossil record where we really find macro fossils. And that is not the Cambrian explosion, but before the so-called Avalon explosion. Avalon is named for a reconstructed ancient continent. This happened about 570 million years ago. And what we find there is a very strange ecosystem, very different from everything that were, came later. Uh, the seafloor was covered with bacterial mats. And then we have these strange organisms which ha have a different symmetry. For example, we are bilateral symmetrical, left and right is the same there. The left and right side is shifted a little bit. This is called glide symmetry. We don't know this from any other kind of organisms. Uh, we know they have a fractal growth, which is very strange. A kilted structure, kind of like an air mattress from, from the body type, from the body plan. No visible organs, no mouth parts, no anus, no, no uh, openings for zooids or something like that. Uh, we have no idea what they were, if they were animals, plants, fungi. Uh, some people say they were giant protists on independent way to multicellularity. In any way, they are not related to the later animal phyla. Uh, some of them were considered as precursor. For example, this pregina was called as a precursor of trilobites because superficially it seems to be similar, but again, if you look closely, you see uh, it's not bilateral symmetrical. It's not even a bilaterian animal. And the next, uh, these uh, animals, uh, sorry, came into origin within a 10 million year window of time. So in a very short time, geologically, this whole ecosystem appears out of nothing before you have only unicellular protists and, and some uh, filamentous algae. And uh, suddenly you have this and then the Cambrian explosion, which you probably all heard about. Uh, there was a cover in Time magazine uh, calling this event Evolution's Big Bang. 
because there in this time uh, at the Cambrian, 535 till 550 million years ago, all the different kinds of multicellular animals appear with their distinct body plans. So uh, animal phyla would be something like the arthropods or the mollusks or, or uh, the vertebrates or the echinoderms and so on. So of 28 phyla we know today of these basic major body plans of the animal kingdom, 21 you find uh, at this very early time at the Cambrian explosion, which of course is a problem for Darwinian evolution because boom, you have all the different kinds of body plan without any precursors, without gradual development of these body plans from common ancestors. So how do you explain this evidence? And some disputed the suddenness of the dating, but actually all the experts who are really working on the Cambrian explosions agree on the dating of this event and the duration of the event. So some people said, well, it's again just a gap of evidence and, and we didn't find uh, the animal ancestors in earlier strata because uh, the sediments didn't exist uh, which could preserve these animals. But actually this is falsified by recent findings from Eastern Asia, from Mongolia and China, where we found fossil deposits which have exactly the same type of preservation like the famous Burgess Shale where we find this Cambrian phyla. Uh, but what we find in these localities is nothing but algae, no animals. So it's not that the animals could not be preserved and we have a kind of gap of evidence. It's, they are not there because they are not there and not because we didn't find them. Another uh, uh, strategy to explain the evidence away uh, was uh, the argument from the so-called small shelly fauna. Now the small shelly fauna are small part of animal skeletons and uh, you see here in the time axis here, this black line would be the border between the Precambrian, the Ediacaran, and the Cambrian. There you find you have this diversity of the small shelly fauna in the Cambrian and a uh, thin red line before in the Ediacaran. And there it was said, well, you have this kind of continuity, the diversity grew, but there were some precursors before. The problem is that this is uh, a fallacy of equivocation. If we look at the actual uh, small shelly faunas, they are two different, very different faunas. One is the Cambrian small shelly fauna proper, which is just fragments of the Cambrian animals. It's fragment of echinoderm scales or, or of arthropod skeletons. What we find in the Ediacaran shelly fauna are basically just two types of organisms, uh, Cludina and Namacalatus. They were for a time uh, problematica and some thought maybe they are related to a later Cambrian phyla. Meanwhile, we know that they are not bilaterian animals. Why? Because we found growth uh, structures which show branching growth. So Cludinia, for example, had a branching growth, uh, which is impossible for a bilaterian animal, they were probably cylanterates uh, related to Snidarians, uh, for example. So there are two different uh, groups of, of small shelly faunas. There's no continuity and these were not the ancestors of the, the Cambrian small shelly fauna. And the other argument was from the uh, trace fossil record. And actually in the Cambrian you find a very vast trace fossil record. It's also called the Cambrian substrate revolution because before in these biota where you have these bacterial mats, you only find trace fossils that, that are restricted to the surface layer of the sediment, just on the uh, surface of the seafloor. And in the Cambrian, suddenly you find burrowing worms and other animals that burrow into the sediment, deep into the sediment. And uh, it was said, well, but you have these trace fossils in the Ediacaran, and maybe these were the simple precursors. We don't know the bodies, but we have the traces. And that was a valid criticism until a seminal paper in 2016 by Mariotti et al. And what they did is experimental paleontology. And they said, well, we have these bacterial mats in the Ediacaran. Let's grow these bacterial mats in an aquarium tank. And look what happens when we stir those mats up and look uh, what structures do they form when they settle. And what you see here on this side are the actual trace fossils from the Ediacaran. Some of them look like traces, traces of arthropods, others like worm traces. And these are uh, structures that were formed just by stirring up bacterial mats in an aquarium tank and letting them settle. And then you get these folds and artifacts. And actually you can reproduce all of the Ediacaran trace fossil with these experiments in the aquarium tanks. There are no longer any 
trace fossils of the Ediacaran left, which are credible as real animal tracks. So again, there's no discontinuity. The Cambrian explosion is as abrupt as it has ever been. And if we go to the next uh, time in, in Earth history, the Ordovician, there is an event that has been called Life's Second Big Bang. And it's uh, the great Ordovician biodiversification event. And what happens there is that you have a sudden increase, massive increase in biodiversity of the marine invertebrate groups like corals and mollusks and, and brachiopods and so on. And uh, this is within a 15 million year window of time, you see uh, this, this vast increase of biodiversity uh, again, a lot of these groups appearing uh, out of thin air without having precursors in the previous Cambrian uh, time. And the next, in, at the border of the Silurian and Devonian, that would be the next eras in Earth history, you have the conquering of the land uh, by plants, uh, which is called the radiation of terrestrial biotas, about 400 to uh, 427 million years ago. And actually, the oldest plants uh, that we found uh, from the Silurian, something like Barakvarnatia here from the Silurian of India, they already belong to a modern subgroup, the, the club mosses. And uh, the, the sudden appearance of land plants has been called uh, an equivalent of the much debated Cambrian explosion of marine faunas. So again, a sudden appearance of this complete new structure, and of course, land flora was necessary for animal life to, to develop on, on land. And also in the Devonian, we have another revolution and explosion, the so-called Devonian Necton Revolution. Now, if you look at marine life, there are three different basic types how you can live. Either you live close to the seafloor, this is called demersal, that would be this brown part in the chart, or you live passively drifting in the water column, that would be planktonic, that would be the green part, or you're an active swimmer like fish or cephalopods like, like octopuses. Uh, this is the blue part. And you see in the Devonian suddenly, boom, the complete ecosystems are reversed before you have planktonic organisms uh, dominating biodiversity in the oceans and suddenly then actively swimmers are uh, dominating the biodiversity in the world's oceans. In a window of time of 10 million years, this happened and you have all these different groups of, of cephalopods and, and different kind of uh, jawed fish. And correlated with this origin of, of jawed fish, you have an event that is called the odontoid explosion in a relatively recent uh, paper which showed that all these different kind of tooth uh, structures appear suddenly within 10 million year window of time again in the different group uh, which, uh, of vertebrates which were uh, formerly called fish. Uh, that would be the lobe fin fish, like the Sölakant or lungfish, the ray fin fish, that would be something like the trout, for example, and the cartilaginous uh, fish, like shark and ray relationship. And here in yellow, you see this short window of time. Red would be the actual fossil records of these groups, and they all appear in this narrow window of time with these new tooth-like structures appearing out of, of nowhere. And in my own field of expertise in fossil insects, we have in the Carboniferous a sudden appearance of all the groups of flying insects. You have these different orders, beetles, and then you have several hundred thousand of beetle species, and butterflies, and flies, and, and locusts, and so on. And all these groups appear in the Carboniferous suddenly without precursors. And it's not only that we find primitive uh, uh, groups like mayflies, and dragonflies, and cockroaches, but even holometabolans like wasps and beetles, and that is surprising because holometabolans are those insects that have this very complex uh, morphogenesis where the larva develops into the pupa, and in the pupa the whole body is dissolved into a kind of liquid and the whole tissues are rearranged, and before you have this totally different organism, the caterpillar, and later you have hatching a beetle or a butterfly. That you find something like this at the very origin of, of insect uh, uh, life history and not, let's say, 200 million years later is surprising and is a problem for Darwinian evolution. It doesn't fit the, the, the prediction we would make from, from this theory. And in the next age of Earth history, we, we uh, get a real carpet bombing of different uh, explosions. It has been again called something as important for animal life on land as the Cambrian explosion was for marine animal life in a book 
by Peter Ward, uh, which has the revealing title, Out of Thin Air. And uh, among these different explosions is one, uh, the tetrapod radiation. And what we find is suddenly, in, in less than 10 million years, the appearance of the first real mammal-like uh, uh, forms, uh, the first relatives of lizards and iguanas, the first relatives of the crocodile group, the first relatives of the turtle group, and the first relatives of the dinosaur bird group. With one exception, and that, that would be the mammal group, all without any possible known precursors in the strata below. Another is marine reptiles. Uh, today we don't have marine reptiles except for the marine iguana and, and marine turtles. But in the Triassic we had a jump from zero to 15 different families of marine reptiles in again an 8 million year window of time. Here's a little overview of, of different of these uh, groups of, of reptiles, very different body plans. And one of the most striking is ichthyosaurs, because in ichthyosaurs we have a transition from an assumed terrestrial ancestor walking on four legs to this fish-like animals in, in about four million years, which is the reason why a friend and former study colleague of mine who is a specialist on ichthyosaurs told me he's a total naturalist, he's not a theist, not a Christian, uh, that he became skeptical of neo-Darwinism because he says it's impossible with a Darwinian mechanism to make this morphological transition in four million years. And the same in gliding and flying reptiles. We have, uh, within just two million years, a sudden origin of different uh, groups of gliders, uh, some of them gliding with their hind legs, some with rib projections or with these strange outgrowths of the back, and even the first active flyers, uh, the pterosaur group. Dinosaurs appear suddenly in the, the upper Triassic. Uh, there's a recent paper from 2018 which uh, said it's amazing how clear-cut the change from no dinosaurs to all dinosaurs was in the fossil record. Same with these marine kind of monitor lizards, the mosasaurs, which uh, grew up to 70 meters length. And they appear suddenly in a vast diversity in the upper Cretaceous. And it's not like, just like that uh, uh, kind of monitor uh, lizards went into the oceans, uh, grow bigger, and developed a hind tail. We have soft part preservation, which shows they had a restructuring of their interior organs, similar to whales. They had the bronchi uh, didn't split like uh, their assumed ancestors, which were monitor-like uh, lizard, but they run parallel to each other, as it is in, in modern whales, as an adaptation to marine lifestyle. So this had to happen, this transformation, this morphological transformation had to happen in this window of time. And we will see later that this is a genetic problem as well. Flowering plants, uh, the abrupt appearance of flowering plants was already known to Darwin uh, as a problem. He called it uh, the abominable mystery, and it still is. A paper from 2015 said, then about 125 million years ago, angiosperms and their flowers sprang forth during the Cretaceous period as fully formed as Aphrodite. You see here a sea lily uh, from 150 million years ago, uh, crater formation limestones from Brazil. And this contradicts, of course, the sudden appearance of a complex structure like flowers, the Darwinian picture, and it was uh, uh, the reason why Darwin said uh, something like this could be called the biggest uh, objection you could make to my theory. Same in placental mammals uh, uh, in the, the uh, lower, uh, lower tertiary. You have the sudden appearance of all the, the modern orders of, of mammals. And here you have uh, two photos of the oldest known bats uh, 52 uh, mil uh, million years ago from the Green River Formation. And here a, a drawing of a skeleton of a modern bat. So th their body plans were fully formed. No ancestors at all in the, the fossil record before. And basically the same you find in the, all, uh, in the other groups of, of uh, mammals in the fossil record. That would be the different orders of mammals like carnivores or whales and, and different kinds of ungulates and rodents and primates and so on. This would be the tree. And you see this narrow yellow uh, window of time. The red dots are the actual oldest findings of the fossils and, and you find them all in this band. Uh, very suddenly and without precursors where they should be. 
Same with birds, uh, confirmed also by a recent study, 2015, that all the major groups of, of modern birds appeared suddenly in a 10 million uh, year window of time after the KBG impact. And if we look at humans, th there are several uh, things that are very abrupt. One is the origin of our own genus Homo itself, which has also been called a Big Bang because there is no gradual transition between the ape-like Australopithecine fossil forms and the, the real uh, representative of the, the genus Homo. But even if you look at cultural evolution, and I have made here a chart where I, I mapped all the different kind of cultural achievements from the first stone tools till writing. And there you have in the, the upper Paleolithic a time where especially symbolic uh, techniques, green would be just techniques like, like tools for, for, for doing something and brown would be uh, stuff that invo uh, involves symbolic thinking like uh, making necklaces or drawings or carvings and so on. And uh, there's a relatively sudden increase of the symbolic uh, evidence for symbolic thinking in the upper Paleolithic. It has a little bit been diffused by modern findings uh, from Africa, but it's still true that uh, this, this theory of a human revolution uh, which some uh, uh, anthropologists uh, uh, connect with a genetic mutation that rewired the brain. Uh, it's still uh, the state of our knowledge that this happened relatively abruptly. So we find uh, this kind of discontinuity is not an exception from the rule, but it's very uh, a consistent pattern in the fossil record. But there are other phenomena, and one is stasis and living fossils. You all know examples of living fossils like the Silakand or the Tuatara lizard or the Nautilus or, or the Ginkgo tree. Uh, recent organisms that more or less look unchanged like fossils that are hundreds of millions of years old. And a very striking example is horseshoe crabs. Here you have a recent representative also, this dark brown one is a recent species, Limulus polyphemus. What you see here, it looks like a duplicate, is Limulus darwini, 150 million years old from, from the upper Jurassic, actually, of Poland. And uh, still looking absolutely identical here, Limulitella terensis from Tunisia, from the mid-Triassic. That's already a quarter billion years old and still very similar uh, from the Ordovician uh, one of the first uh, horseshoe crabs, nearly a half billion years old. To have a group that survives a half billion years without significant morphological change, of course, is a little bit strange if you think that Darwinian theory predicts little changes add up to major, uh, more major changes over time. So why didn't they change? And why did they survive? And other groups, which were much more diverse, much more adapted to different habitats, like trilobites. Uh, we know 17,000 species of fossil trilobites, the, the nearly 250 families. They lived for uh, nearly a quarter billion years. But they went extinct, and horseshoe crabs not. Why? Why not them? So the usual explanation is natural selection. And it said natural selection is transformative when the environmental conditions change. And natural selection is preserving and is not transformative when environmental conditions uh, stay the same. Then it's a stabilizing force. So natural selection can do two things. It can transform or not. It's in a way like uh, this old weather saying uh, if the cockerel crows on, on, on the, the, the spot, the weather, weather may change or again it may not. Uh, it's, it's, it's in a way uh, uh, not really an interesting uh, scientific hypo hypothesis to have a process which can do everything and explains basically everything or nothing. So why do some groups thrive by changing and, and others by, by not changing? And uh, this explanation that it's in the living fossil simply the environmental conditions stayed the same is not plausible because if you look at the time where horseshoe crabs existed in this lifespan of horseshoe crabs you had all five major mass extinction events each of them extinguished 96, 76, 90, 86 percent of marine biodiversity that these events didn't affect the ecosystems and the environmental conditions of horseshoe crabs simply is nonsense. And you also had the uh, major explosive events, for example, like the Devonian Necton Revolution, which changed all marine 
fundamentally changed all marine ecosystems. So constant environmental conditions is not a plausible explanation for this uh, stasis in the fossil record. So uh, what will be invoked is contingency. And people will say, well, sometimes you win, sometimes uh, you lose. Evolution is a contingent process. Trilobites were the poor losers, and, and uh, horseshoe crabs were the lucky winners. But the problem with this uh, explanation is that contingency was on vogue in time of Stephen G. Gould, who said, well, if we could rewind the tape of evolution somehow then and run it again, then everything would be very different. But actually, meanwhile, most uh, evolutionary biologists would say, no, that's not true. The, uh, Conway, Simon Conway Morris wrote two books about uh, this issue and said, well, evolution is not a con uh, contingent process. Uh, it finds the same solutions over and over again. It's very much constrained to certain solutions. And uh, uh, the problem is this phenomenon of convergence, which is ubiquitous in, uh, everywhere in the history of life. And so we cannot say, well, it's just a lucky circumstance that one group adapted and the other group adapted not when we find that uh, evolution is very much constrained and not so much a contingent process. And finally, there is another problem with Darwinian predictions, and that is species-to-species -species transition. Uh, Darwin, of course, said you have to have these fine-grained, gradual species-to-species -species transitions. And he knew we don't see them in the fossil record, and he explained it with uh, the incompleteness of the fossil record. But at least you should find it there, where you have a lot of layers, fine-grained uh, over a long period of time, and that's where uh, paleontologists looked for evidence for this kind of phyletic gradualism. And actually, the only examples they found were um, uh, among marine protists of the so-called group foraminiferans, which have exoskeleton. Uh, this is a macro photo of some of them. And uh, there's, for example, this famous, uh, probably the most famous example as an alleged proof for Darwinian gradualism between species, uh, Globorotalia plesiotumida to Globorotalia tumida. And uh, recently it uh, was disproved. There is a paper uh, from 2009, and it has a very nice title, Evidence for Abrupt Speciation in a Classic Case of Gradual Evolution. It was shown uh, that actually the evidence doesn't add up and that it's not a, not a case of, of gradualism at all. And uh, one of the few other examples would be freshwater snails of, uh, from the Miocene sediments of the Steinheim basin in Germany, uh, snails of the genus Uraulus. They, were, they became famous uh, through the German paleontologist Franz Hilgendorf. He used them uh, 1866 for the first phylogenetic tree using fossils, uh, the first alleged confirmation of Darwin's theory based on fossils. But there were early critics of, of, of the assumption that this is phyletic speciation who said, well, this could as well be just ecophenotypes, ecological uh, morphs uh, in the same habitat. And this was actually confirmed recently in 2015 by a study of this still existing genus Uraulus in lakes of the Tibetan Plateau, where they found all these different shell types together in the same habitat in the Tibetan lakes and refuted that this is uh, phyletic speciation. So basically, we have no fossil evidence left for gradual species-to-species uh, -species transitions. And uh, final case, we have already seen this chart of the mammal tree. There is a strange uh, clash between molecular data and fossil data. Uh, we have this method of the molecular clock, which we can use to date uh, the branching events. And we have a molecular comparison of sequences to reconstruct trees. What you see here, this tree is the most modern, from 2016, most modern molecular tree phylogeny of mammals. And the horizontal axis are, uh, are the datings based on molecular clock. And that is not the molecular clock uh, method of the early time where you assumed a constant rate ticking that is so-called relaxed molecular clock with fluctuating rates of, of, of change uh, using multiple fossil calibration points, which is a nice name for fudging the data to make them fit uh, the evidence. You use the fossil to, to make the molecular clock and uh, not uh, uh, being too out of sync with uh, what you should expect. But still, you see all these branching of the uh, mammalian orders should be here in the Cretaceous. 
and the fossils we find, none of them is found here. And this is statistically significant. If you look at the number of examples, there should be at least in one of the branches, we should, be, should find, find something uh, where it is predicted by the molecular clock. And this is not only in mammals, it's basically everywhere where you compare molecular data with uh, fossil data, you find this uh, disparity between the, the datings and the actual record. And so the only thing that you can do is explain this uh, stuff away with ad hoc explanations. And uh, everybody has to decide if he is convinced by these kind of Kipling-esque uh, just so stories uh, like Kipling uh, explained how the leopard got its spot and, and forged a fancy story how it happened. You can always create a story that explains the evidence. You should do it the other way. You should look at the evidence and find the best explanation for the evidence. And now that was the fossil evidence, but uh, there's another thing. And the other thing is if we look at the fossil evidence, people will say, well, fossil evidence confirms Darwin because it establishes deep time and these transitional fossils. And on the other hand, you have population genetics. And population genetics shows something like the evolution of drug resistance in microbes. And if you add both together, then you have microevolution established and you extrapolate this over this deep time and then you have macroevolution. The problem is if you really combine the fossil record and population genetics, you get a problem. Uh, because it turns out that the windows of time that you get uh, from the fossil record don't allow for the time you need by population genetics for the necessary genetic changes. So windows of time established, for example, in the origin of feathers. We meanwhile have a rich fossil record of feathered dinosaurs uh, from China, very well dated with different types of, of feathers. And we can narrow down the available window of time for a transition from a kind of filamentous precursor structure to a real uh, veined uh, feather with its complex interlocking devices depending on your threshold for the reliability of the data between zero and three million years, so less than a single species lifetime. For the argument which I want to explain you in, uh, to you in a moment, we have to know one term that is coordinated mutation. What is a coordinated mutation? It means that you need at least two mutations coming together in the same organism to have an adaptive effect. So selection can only kick in if a mutation has either a positive or negative survival effect. If a single mutation is neutral and another single mutation is neutral, then they cannot be selected for. But sometimes if two neutral mutations come together, then together they have an adaptive effect and selection can kick in. And that is meant with coordinated mutations, adaptive effects caused by two correlated genetic changes, two or more. So the waiting time problem uh, uh, that originates from the fossil record and population genetic is basically evolution is supposed to proceed by random mutation and natural selection. Selection can only work when you have an adaptive value. Some adaptive advantages require two or more coordinated mutations. This we know by, by uh, experimental data and empirical data. And all mutations have two time constraints. One is the mutation has to arise in a population, and the second is the uh, mutation has to spread in the population for the whole species to have this character. And uh, these two time constraints are the two waiting times that are uh, involved, and now we can look, does the fossil record allow to accommodate these waiting times? And actually, these waiting times pose a dilemma because if you play with the uh, possible variables, for example, population size, if you make the population large, then you have a lot of play possibilities for evolution. So the mutation can arise more fast, but it takes longer to fix the, fixate the mutation, to spread in the population. If you have a small population, it can be fixed, uh, change can be fixed and spread in the, in the population very quickly but you have to wait longer to get the uh, uh, mutation in the first place. So there's no easy way around this problem. And you might think, well, in, in B parental species, you have recombination, a neutral mutation could arise there in the population and there in the population, and then they come together by uh, sexual recombination. But actually, the effect has been studied in a paper already in, in 1998, and they came to the result that the effect by recombination there is an effect, but it is small compared to the other variables like mutation rate and population size. So it doesn't solve the, 
uh, waiting time problem. To, to do the math, it's actually you need only a few variables like the mutation rate, which is new, known experimentally in, in different groups of organisms. Uh, you have to know the population size. For fossil groups, you can make reasonable estimates by comparing them to recent groups. So, for example, a fossil group of early whale precursors, precursors would have had a population size comparable rather to wild boars than to Escherichia coli bacteria. And the same with uh, generation turnover times. That would be the th third variable. Uh, uh, you can make a reasonable est estimate for, let's say, for a large vertebrate, the generation time is some years and not some seconds. And then you can do the math. And actually, uh, Michael Behe, uh, who is the Michael Behe of bacterial flagellum fame, uh, he basically discovered this problem as, as, uh, as uh, a problem for Darwinism in his book, The Edge of Evolution. And he didn't make a mathematical calculation, but he looked at empirical data from malaria drug resistance. And what he found is that a lot of the malaria drugs uh, resistance developed very quickly in a few years because only point mutations were necessary. But in the case of chloroquine, the drug chloroquine, it took several decades. And the reason was, it was discovered later, that there you needed a coordinated mutations. Two mutations, neutral for each other, had to come together to produce this kind of, of uh, resistance against chloroquine. And then he made it, made the, uh, uh, he simply transposed the data. If you look at the vast population size of malaria uh, 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 microbes, compared to the population size of vertebrates and their short generation time, and you transpose these data, he came up to the uh, uh, hypothesis that in vertebrates, for a single coordinated change, you would have to need longer than the existence of the whole universe, 10 to the power of 15 years. Now, this is, of course, would be a problem. And, and for example, in, in human evolution, we have all these nice fossils. So if a single uh, coordinated change would take longer than the universe, then, then it would be game over. So of course, evolutionary biologists tried to refute Behe. And indeed, in 2008, Durrett and Schmidt, uh, they published a paper in genetics where they said they have refuted uh, Behe. Uh, his result was completely unrealistic. They, did, uh, they made a mathematical calculation based on the methodological apparatus of population genetics and simulations, and they came with a number of 260 million years. Wonderful, this is really much shorter than Behe. The problem is we have only six million years available since the splitting of the human lineage from the chimp lineage. So that is what evolutionary biologists say is the time needed for a single coordinated mutation. And you have to keep in mind, this is a mathematical model which always involves simplifications, and simplifications may involve errors. So what is more likely, that the empirical data from Behe, from malaria drug resistance, are closer to the truth, or the mathematical simulation? I would suggest that rather this uh, uh, 10 to the power of 15 is closer to the, the real constraint in, in nature. But anyway, we arrive at times that are much too long for, for evolution to occur in the available windows of time. A second study by Sanford came basically to the same uh, results. And the problem is also, if you compare, for example, chimp DNA with human DNA, it's always said, oh, they're so similar, 95% similarity. This, these 5% differences means millions of differences in, in base pairs. And these differences have to arise by mutations and have to spread in the population. So you have to accommodate even these 5% difference in this available window of time of, of 6 million years. And, and, and it doesn't add up in population genetics. And even more extreme, it's in the case of whales. Uh, this was calculated by my colleague Richard von Sternberg. In Wales, we have, meanwhile, a very good fossil record of, of a kind of transitional series from land-living uh, assumed ancestors via semi-aquatic uh, amphibious uh, forms to, to fully aquatic whales. And the, we have something like this from the Eocene Pachycetus, which looks like a kind of wild boar, and then something like this dolphin-like dorodon. If we look at the oldest fossils, the available window of time for the, even the most generous estimate is about four and a half million years, a single species of large vertebrate to come from this to this. And uh, if you do the math, as Richard von Sternberg did, he assumed 100,000 individual generation, uh, 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 population size, five years of generation turnover time, and, and he arrived at over 40 million years of time for a single 
coordinated mutation. And that's 10 times more than is available. And you might say, well, maybe we didn't need coordinated mutation, just point mutation to make the transition. The problem is if you look at the necessary re-engineering to get from this wild boar-like ancestor to something like this, it's not only you need the fluke and the dorsal fin and ball vertebra to move the fluke like this and the new tissue for the lung, for the lung to inflate and, and collapse uh, while diving and reorganizing the kidneys for salt water intake and so on. The, the most uh, uh, striking reorganization concerns uh, the male testes. For the streamlined body, the testes were internalized in, in whales. And the problem is here are large muscle packages which drive the fluke uh, for, for locomotion underwater. And these muscles generate heat. And we know heat is bad for fertility. And bad fertility is basically bad cards in, in evolution. So whales have to come up with a kind of cooling mechanism for the testers. And what they developed is a countercurrent heat, ex heat exchange system where cold blood from the dorsal fin and from the fluke is pumped through a complex system of, of veins to the testers and the hot blood transported away and the cold blood get there. But the problem is uh, this system, which is newly developed and not existing in other uh, uh, mammals, it doesn't make sense if the testes are not internalized. And on the other, uh, other hand, if you don't have the testes internalized, you don't need the countercurrent heat exchange system. So it is a very generous assumption to assume that for this system, you need one coordinated mutation. Probably you need 100. But let's say just one, then you still have this problem that the numbers don't add up. And if you confront uh, paleontologists with these uh, data, uh, there was a famous debate, 2009, where Richard Sternberg debated uh, Donald Prothero, who wrote this famous book, uh, anti-creationist book, Evolution, What the Fossils Say and Why It Matters. Prothero was completely baffled. He, he had no answer to this uh, problem. He didn't even understand the problem properly and, and was totally clueless. He couldn't, couldn't give an evolutionary explanation how, how this could have happened. And even his own results make this problem uh, uh, more uh, significant because Prothero himself found that large artiodactyl mammal species that would be the ancestors of, of whales uh, have a lifespan of about four million years. So in, in one species lifetime you make this transition. That's impossible. So m most Darwinists will tell you, well, that's just creationist propaganda and there is no discussion. Their evolution is an established fact. This is a blatant lie. It's not true. There was a conference in, in 2016, which I attended uh, in London at the Royal Society called New Trends in Evolutionary Biology, completely mainstream evolutionary biology conference. And uh, there uh, uh, was a keynote presentation by one of the most distinguished evolutionary biologists of our time, that's uh, Professor Gerd Müller from Austria. And he showed in his keynote presentation this slide, which I have to translate because it's too, not, not sharp enough explanatory deficits of the MS theory. MS is modern synthesis, is a synonym for neo-Darwinism. And he lists among the explanatory deficits what the theory cannot explain. Phenotypic complexity, phenotypic novelty, non-gradual forms of transition. I'm sorry, that is all the interesting stuff. Phenotypic novelty and complexity and non-gradual forms of transition. If neo-Darwinism cannot explain this, what can he explain? The origin of, of, of drug resistance in microbes on the, in the petri dish and nothing else. And uh, there will be another conference in 2018 in Austria, especially on evolution of viruses, uh, organized by the New York Academy of Science. Again, not by some kind of, of Darwin critic uh, organization. And on the announcement on the webpage of this conference, you find this uh, striking statement. For more than a half century, it has been accepted that new genetic information is mostly derived from random error-based events, mutations. Now it is recognized that errors cannot explain genetic novelty and complexity. That is a declaration of death for neo-Darwinism. The reason why most Darwinists will tell you there is no discussion is because 99% of evolutionary biologists don't work on the underpinnings of the theory. They work on detailed problems. Is the East African uh, locust more closely related to the Asian locust or to the American locust? And not on the, on the 
the mechanism of evolution, those uh, theoretical biologists who really work on the underpinnings of the theory are quite aware that neo-Darwinism failed as explanation for the interesting stuff in the history of life. And they have now a lot of new ideas like, like uh, phenotypic plasticity, evolvability, natural genetic engineering, niche construction. All these new ideas are not tested. We have no idea about their explanatory scope and power. And more important, they either fail to address the major problem of, of origin of new complex phenotypic structures, or they rely on neo-Darwinism themselves to, because to have phenotypic plasticity, it has to arise and it cannot explain itself. Either, uh, otherwise, you have a kind of Munchausen problem to pull yourself up from your own hair. So you need the neo-Darwinism just a level deeper. And if neo-Darwinism fails to, to explain uh, new structures, then it fails to explain the origin of phenotypic plasticity. So the final thing would be people will tell you, well, that's all nice, but you are only criticizing neo-Darwinism, but you make no positive case for intelligent design or for some kind of other uh, non-natural, non-mechanistic explanation for the history of life. There are two problems with this argument. First is it's not true. The intelligent design argument is not an argument from ignorance. It's not a God of the gaps argument. It argue, argues from what we know about the causal structure of the universe that intelligent agents are the only cause for, for specified complex information. And it's an inference to the best explanation based on this, this knowledge. But even if it would be an ar argument from, from ignorance, then uh, people will say, well, it's a kind of Sherlock Holmes fallacy. Maybe you know Sherlock Holmes in his, his novel said, well, if you exclude all the impossible stuff, then whatever remains must be true, however unlikely it may be. And of course, this would be a fallacy if you don't exclude all other alternatives. But if you have excluded all other alternatives, then it's not a fallacy, then it's a valid argument. And I would claim that neo-Darwinism is the only possible naturalistic explanation how a bottom-up process, stepwise iterative process, could explain complex, the origin of complex, uh, complexity in, in our universe. And there's a reason why, why hardcore naturalists like Daniel Dennett called it Darwin's dangerous idea and a universal acid, and Richard Dawkins said uh, Darwin made it possible for him to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist because this is the only possible explanation. And if neo-Darwinism fails, it's not just a side issue. It's basically a refutation for naturalism as, 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 as a sufficient paradigm in, in natural sciences. So Dennett used this analogy of cranes and skyhooks. Skyhooks would be the, the explanation God did it, and cranes would be naturalistic explanations. But I would claim if the only crane has fallen, then a skyhook is the only remaining option. So thank you for your attention, and I'm looking forward for some critical questions. <laughs>